Well, the road trip started bad, and it didn't get much better over the weekend. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here as well. Drantzer, of course, covers the team at The Athletic, too. Uh, Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, you know, Drancer, on Friday, we had a pretty passionate show. The Canucks are coming off a 7-1 loss against the Colorado Avalanche. We uh, We made our feelings known. Plenty of fans had a lot to say as well. And... Not a whole lot changed in those two games against Vegas and Anaheim on Saturday and Sunday. That was two more embarrassing efforts, I would call them, over the weekend for this team. You know, in retrospect, in retrospect, the Colorado Avalanche loss was like in the horror movie when you start the road trip and you like go to the creepy gas station and there's the guy who's like, oh, you're <laughs> headed up Kielman's way, huh? You know, like, uh, it's like, oh, that's a creepy way to start this trip. Like, yeah, hopefully it gets better from here. And then it becomes a full-blown slasher flick in, fl- flick in Ve- Vegas. And then, of course, you know, the gruesome finale in Anaheim. And then the last goal, that fifth goal that they allowed, just hanging Yaroslav Halak out to dry on their way out the door, um, is like the scene where the serial killer or the, the big bad in the horror movie comes back for, like, one last moment, yeah. right? Um, yeah, I mean... Hard to do worse. Hard to do worse than a 19-6 scoreline across three games. Hard to do worse than a 62% PK. Hard to do worse than than like this was what was really concerning to me on this trip. I don't know. I don't know how much it was noticed, and I didn't spend a lot of time pointing it out on Twitter or, or even in the armies last night at the Athletic. But the Ducks were totally comfortable playing their fourth line against Pedersen and Besser. They didn't even hard like Pedersen wasn't even hard matched on the road. The Ducks didn't look out of sorts or uncomfortable at a single point last no. night. There was not a single point where you thought, oh, Vancouver's really turning up the pressure here. And look, here's the thing. <laughs> Ryan Getzlaff just glided about the ice, stealing everyone's lunch money. By the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I know, look, I was on the postgame show sat last night. It was a fiery, fiery night uh, on the phone boards in the text message inbox. Keep those thoughts coming in. Again, 650-650, the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And this one comes in, Taxi Boy, Canucks Hour, make me feel confident that it's going to turn around. Ah, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be the takeaway from today's episode, Taxi Boy. We'll see what we can do. But I look at those two results against Vegas and Anaheim, and it's actually, they kind of combined. To me, it was the worst possible scenario because you end up with embarrassing scorelines, right? Seven goals against Vegas, five goals against Anaheim. But you also blew a lead in both of those games, right? Like, like it was you. You somehow combined the worst possible results in, into both of those games, where you <laughs> got up early. Hey, okay, we're gonna turn things around. Now's our chance. We're playing on the front foot. We're playing with a lead. We haven't done that much this year, and then it still somehow turned into an absolute catastrophe in both games by the end of it. Reality knocks. Like reality knocks when you have two top four quality defensemen. Reality knocks, right? When you don't have the depth. To play Tyler Myers with OEL, like, woof. Did that look different, right? Myers has played really well this season to this point. But how much of that was him being more than the sum of his parts because of his partner, yes. Oliver ekman Larson? Because when when he went to up to play with Hughes, uh, I just thought that was an adventure every time out. Burroughs on the second pair, meanwhile, similar. 
uh, there was a moment in the game. It was actually the moment that led to the penalty drawn for the three one Ducks goal, right? Ryan Getzlaff puck just on just on his own side side of the side of the red line, just dumps it in at Burroughs. And it was like a classic test. Like a I don't know that you can handle this. I've got my young legs coming at you. Not not Getzlaff's young legs, like his line mates. Yeah. Um, you know, good luck, good luck. And of course he takes the penalty and the ducks ice the game. And it was just this moment, like this moment where the top hockey brain out there, 36-year-old Ryan Getzlaff, right? was just like, I don't think you can do this. Like, I don't think you're a top four quality D. And he tested it, and he was right. And that's sort of the problem. Like, everything about this team screams low baseline to me, right? Like, they're a team that can't – they're a team with a glass jaw. They're a team that can't take the punches, right? Because they don't have a solid enough foundation. It's all style, no substance, right? And I thought in particular last night you really saw the – the talent deficit at the bottom of the roster shine through, right? And, and one of the power play goals that the Ducks score in the third period there, you look at the guys who are out there killing that penalty, right? And it's, okay, Jason Dickinson, who hasn't had success this year, but he's an NHL player, but it's Madison Bowie, just called up. Yuho Lamico acquired for Ole Levy at the, at the, on the eve of the actual regular season and thrown into the lineup. And Tyler Myers, who is not an effective penalty killer, not the traditionally not one of his strengths. And that's who you have out there in a big moment in the third period, trying to kill a penalty for you. Right. And, or in the second period, excuse me, trying to kill a penalty for you. And it's just, it's again, we, we talk about, you know, we've, we've spent so much time discussing the penalty kill and okay, what can they do differently? Are they too passive? But then you look at the talent that's being asked to do the job, and it's not sufficient. It's nope. not going to get the job done. Well, like, a badly coached penalty kill is like a 72% PK with the right personnel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The Canucks are on pace to be historically bad on the PK, and you don't get there on coaching alone. <laughs> Especially from a staff that's had, you know, a league average or better penalty kill over multiple years, right? Like, this is, you know, sorry, is this team underperforming? Yes. Right? For sure. Yep. Should they be getting more out of the talent available to them? Yes, for sure. Is their bigger problem a fundamental, fundamentally compromised construction up and down the lineup? I think so. It's a team with not enough D, too many light forwards, right? They're not playing well at all. Um, and they've got great goaltending, which they've just wasted. They've just wasted yeah. stellar goaltending through 17 games. Like, what, what does this team look like with human goaltending? Like, I'd suggest to you we saw it. I, I'd suggest to you we saw it in Colorado and Vegas, and I don't have a lot of appetite to watch much more of it. No, and that's that's what this really comes down to, right, is how much appetite is there in this market for this to continue, right? And this comes in from Little Sammy, right? I hate this team so much. The defense sucks. The offense sucks. They don't fight. They're too small. They're capped out. They have no prospects. They have diminished picks this year. The franchise won't win till this thing gets completely torn down. And that's just, that's literally me just reading the first, the text that happens to be at the top of the inbox right <laughs> it's now. It's a good text. From Little Sammy. But quality stuff, Little Sammy. There's a lot of Go that. Off. And by the way, if you if you listen to the postgame show last night, you heard Wayne uh, call in with an epic rant about how people should sign their texts, and please do sign your text when you text in. We do appreciate, especially it. if it's gold. Like we want to give you yeah, credit, exactly. little Sammy, little Sammy. Like that's gold. I'm glad we were able to credit you. Yeah, thank you, little Sammy. Um, <laughs> plus, it's just fun to say, little Sammy. Totally. Play it again, how, little. How Sammy. little are we talking here? Anyways, let's not get distracted <laughs> by that. But that <laughs> that is the kind of next discussion, right? Because. 
as we talked about on Friday, we've been here, we've been here before where the team is in crisis and it feels like inevitably dominoes have to start falling and they haven't fallen, right? And and I just I do wonder what is next for this organization and how much of it does depend on not just people calling into our post-game show, venting on Twitter, venting in our text message inbox, but what what happens in that game on Wednesday against the Colorado Avalanche at home. And Drancer, I remember when we started doing this show, right, and the Canucks started on the road, and you made the excellent point that if they didn't find a way to turn that road trip around, the first home game at Rogers Arena this year, the vibe could be very, very off, right, if there was already yep. that frustration mounting. Now, they, they managed to avoid that by getting a couple of big wins at the end of that road trip. <laughs> the homestand... Went completely sideways. Not successful at all. Oh, and it was about to turn ugly in that fourth game. Yep. And then they figured it out. Like, that was the third period against, I can't even remember, was it the Rangers? The Rangers. Yeah. It was Where the fourth, they, third. Down 2 nothing. come back to tie it, get yeah. the win in overtime. The third period against the yep. Rangers. And it was actually a brilliant period with Demko going Hashik and yep. JT Miller taking over. Like, that was brilliant. Colds and scoring. Just yeah. fun hockey. Yeah, great. Yeah. Connor, Connor Garland, the straw that stirs the drink. Yeah, no, that was a nice... That was a nice period for the team. And I think that, like, you could hear boos as yep. the team left the ice. There was a section chanting, um, you know, fire green. It just didn't catch on. I might have in the third period, but they immediately started scoring. They turned it around. A disaster averted. But, yeah, I mean, it does feel like when you bring up what th- that I brought that up well before the home opener, yep. right? Like, I brought that up over a month ago, and now it's like this team's just narrowly staying ahead of the angry hordes. Well, it's incredible. As you say, they're narrowly avoiding it, but the luck has run out at this point. Yeah. Right. Like they, they've avoided it a couple times already. They've managed to not put themselves in a position where the home crowd is primed to be vocally angry and vocally upset at the, at the organization. They've managed to avoid that, but there's no getting around it on Wednesday. There's no getting around it. And that road trip was hurt. You, you could not have scripted it better. If you wanted fans to be angry for your next home game, then that three-game road trip. Giving up 19 goals in three games. the Like, everything that's wrong with this team was in full display on this road trip. As you said, the roster construction, which I think we agree is fundamentally at issue. But the coaching, the effort from the players, which I thought in that third period was non-existent. And I get it. It's a back-to-back. It's three and four nights. But that was still a really deflating, dispiriting performance from the players. Everything you could possibly think of that's going to tick fans off, make them angry, make them passionate, make them want to come out and voice their displeasure on Wednesday, it was all there in this road trip. And as you said, they managed to stay ahead of the angry hordes up to this point this season. That's not the case anymore, and I think we're going to see that on Wednesday. I think so, too. And especially because it's Colorado. Like, it's Colorado. They, they They need to win... Or at least put in a really gutsy performance on Wednesday against Colorado. I think you got to get at least a point. Yeah, you have to get it to overtime for sure. Yeah. Or 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 just uh, sorry, and it's snowballing anyway. Yeah, you know, uh, at least a point, at least a win. You know, lots of people, lots of people have already checked out on watching this team. Like they're still talking about this team. They're still following the results, but lots of people have already checked out because it's just too painful. You know, and and it's not just painful on its own merits. It's not just painful because the hockey's dreck at the moment from this team. It's painful because this is the team that fans have been waiting for and told to be patient for and told not to diss every decision on the way, right? Like, this is the team 
This is the team multiple first-round picks traded, right? Huge contracts taken in to, to build this roster. This is it. This is this club's first real all-in shot since the 2011 core was dismantled completely, you know, by, by about 2017. And it, it, it kind of sucks. Like, it's just not good enough. And it's not even fun to watch. No, that and that's the, that's the really that, to me that's maybe the most surprising part because you could see you know you could see plenty of ways how this season would go bad for the Canucks. I did think they would at least be able to score some goals, even if they were giving them all up on the other end. I thought they'd be able to play some fun hockey, and they have not been able to do it. I think you make a good point. This look, there's been plenty of bad Canucks seasons right in recent years here in Vancouver, and you know this team might end up. Uh, surpassing the point totals of some of those teams from recent years. But the difference is, in those years, you were selling hope, right? And you were selling, hey, Brock Besser was just a Calder finalist. Elias Pettersson just won the Calder. Quinn Hughes, Calder finalist. You were selling the future. But as you say, Drancer, the future is here, right? Those guys are now all on their second contracts. They're all established NHL players that you're expecting to produce. Bo Horvat in, in his, is, is in his prime. You've gone out and acquired veterans like JT Miller. You have Thatcher Demko, who's ascended to the number one spot. You have young players who are cheap still, who theoretically should be complimenting your core in Niels Hoaglander and Vasily Podkolzin, Jack Rathbone, even though he's in Abbotsford right now. All of these pieces that were theoretically supposed to come together – and coalesce into, at the very least, a team solidly in playoff contention. A team that could say, hey, if we get in, we can win a series. Like, that's the bare minimum it should have been. And it's so, so far from that right yeah. now. And you can't, at this point, you can't sell hope anymore. Like, there because you, you don't have a, a Calder nominee this year, right? You don't have prospects coming over next year that fans are really excited about. You've lost that ability to sell hope. That's what was getting you through those those other lean years. Now, what do you have? In, in fact, teams that were competitive far longer than you, right? In Anaheim and L.A., for example. Yep. Ducks right? were in the conference finals, what, 2016-17? Yep. And Kings won the Cup in 2014, right? So, it, like, these teams have been relevant and competitive and have endured rebuilds and are now ahead of the Canucks in the standings with, like, young players like Zegris and Troy Terry significantly outperforming what the Canucks have done. <laughs> like last night, how good were Terry and Zegris yep. versus what the Canucks' young core did, right? And it's not just it's not just their young players. It's that they also have really good blue lines. Like they have Drew Doughty. They have Hampus Lindholm and Josh Manson. I mean, it matters. Like structure matters. Having Ryan Getzlaff, having Ryan Getzlaff, putting Ryan Getzlaff with those young legs that he has, he looks, he looks like a different player. He looks completely revitalized. He's just he's just out there sort of like sergeanting them around the ice. It's beautiful. It was fun to watch. Literally was stealing everyone's lunch money. Every inch of ice. He's 36. My goodness. So, yeah, I mean, no, you can't sell hope. You can't sell hope. Be, you know, and I don't know that this organization ever, ever could. Like, I feel like this is so... The worst part about this is it feels so predictable. It feels so obvious. And it, and it's like the work that the club desperately tried to avoid, right, of actually rebuilding with some discipline is still needed. Like you don't actually get to avoid it. There are no actual shortcuts to building the massive talent you need to win in this league. There are no shortcuts. The bill comes due. And the bill's coming due for the Canucks 
just as it feels like they're out of patience in terms of their best young players. I mean, it just doesn't feel like this can continue, and yet I don't think we have any confidence that it's going to change. Matt and Pomo texted in. I think the worst part of the Vegas and Anaheim games was that this was supposed to be a watershed moment. They'd just gotten blown up by Colorado. These games were supposed to be lines in the sand, and they still had an empty effort. This group is in trouble. And, uh, again, you know, it's it, sometimes you, you blame the players and people say, why aren't you blaming the coach? Why aren't you blaming the GM? If you blame the other ones, they say, why aren't you, why aren't you blaming the coach? Why aren't you blaming the players? There's plenty of it to go around. But I think the overall point there that Matt in Pomo makes at the end of this group is in trouble, that to me is the key, is that what what's happened now is y- you can't convince yourself that there's a path forward for this group, right? It does not seem like, oh, we're just a tweak away or we're just a, a, a systems change away or we're just one good, you know, four or five game winning streak away from completely turning this around and this group reaching its potential. It it just seems like there's no path forward as the team is currently constructed. And once you reach that conclusion, you know, what follows from that, Drancer, as you're saying is, okay, well, then we're probably going to have to do a real rebuild thing or we're going to have to make major, major changes. And what does that entail for the window for when this team is going to be competitive? All of a sudden, it gets pushed farther and farther into the future. And I think that, more than anything, obviously, it's it's the last three performances that have a lot of fans frustrated. But it's the realization that if, if this is it, if this is the ceiling with this group, it doesn't just sink this year. It has major, major implications for years and years to come with this team. Yeah, it does. No, it does. And it's a tough spot to be in. And, like, you know, you're, you're so pot committed on this season – that you kind of have to give it 10 more games, I think, before you decide to fundamentally change course. If you're going to go for the dead cat bounce, right, if you're going to do the coaching change thing, you kind of got to do that pretty quick. Um, But, you know, I have very little doubt that, um, that, you know, that a a new coach doesn't – if a new coach is also a right-handed centerman and two more top four quality defensemen – then I think they'll make a huge difference. If they're just a guy behind a bench, I mean, maybe they'll get a bit more. This team has underperformed. I don't think there's any question. They need to be better. They they should be better than they have been. But, you know, I, I mean, I just don't see that being as big an issue as the fact that this team's not good. This team's not good. You don't. You can't win in this league with this defense score. You cannot do it. It's not how it's done. And And this isn't new. Like, this isn't a surprise, you know? I, I mean, I, I I thought about it long and hard in the offseason. I was like, who who last made the playoffs with a defense core like this? And I couldn't think of it. And I still can't because it doesn't happen. Jamie, and it just I doesn't. Think your point about, look, go ahead and change the coach. That might be where this is headed, right? Uh, like, it, it, when you're a coach in the NHL and you have this record over five years with a team, usually that means it's time for everyone to move on. But the point you make where we should not the expectation shouldn't be, oh, this team's gonna make a coaching change, and all of a sudden the on ice product is going to look dramatically different. That's not a reasonable expectation. And I know no. you can look at teams in the past who made a coaching change and all of a sudden they started storming up the standings. But even in those in those instances, a lot of the time I would argue that 
there was something in the underlying profile of those teams that suggested they had a run in like in them like that. Totally. Right? Like with with the LA Kings when Daryl Sutter took over, or even the Blues when Berube took over, you could look at those teams and say, you know what, if they just get some bounces going their way, they're going to be really dangerous. That's not what this Canucks team looks yeah. like right now. So maybe a coaching change does need to be made. At, at this point, it's hard to argue against that. But again, you're doing that for the future. You're not doing that for the rest of this year. You're not doing that to try to salvage this year. You're making that change because it's something that needs to happen for the long-term direction of the franchise. Uh, Dave, the beer league plug texts in, you can't keep shuffling the deck chairs and hope to turn this season around. There needs to be changes on many fronts, roster construction system, etc. I have a hard time having the games on even as background noise lately. And frustrated fan Wayne says, uh, why would there be a management change now? It's been like this the whole Benning era. Nothing is going to change. The Aquilinis are content with the mediocre teams that Jim builds. And I think he signs it frustrated fan Wayne. I think that gets to those two texts in tandem kind of get to a lot of the frustration that we see, right? Because as Dave says, it, this is beyond shuffling the deck chairs, which I completely agree with. But the point Wayne makes is valid as well. I, I said on the postgame show last night, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. The past behavior we've seen from the owners of the Vancouver Canucks is to stick with Jim Benning and Travis Green. So I understand why fans are looking at this and saying, well, what's going to be different this time? We've been here before and nothing's changed, even though it's pretty clear from the outside that massive changes need to happen. We've been here before and nothing's changed. Yeah. The, the, not, I'm not exactly sure why ownership has tolerated this for as long as they have, because it's not just the fact that the team has been bad for eight years with the 2019-20 season, you know, sort of accepted. Um, it's also that they've been spending. They've spent to the cap. Like, they went out and got Ryan Miller, and he played two playoff games for them for $18 million, right? Yeah. I mean, they went out and got Michael Furlan for them. He's played 14 games for for $14 million, you know, you, you go out and you get Tyler Myers. Um, I mean, he's going to make $30 million by the time his time here is done. And what what are the Canucks going to get out of that? They just acquired Oliver Ekman Larson for $56 million, And everyone's excited about it having worked. $56 million, by the way, in total. That's the total liability. And you sort of look at it and think, yeah, he's been good. But has he moved the needle? Like, has he actually moved the needle? Is the fact that Myers and Oliver Ekman Larson have had success together as a $13.26 million second pair. Like, is that really is that really worth celebrating? Is that what you want to hang your hat on? Because because honestly, a second pair that costs that much, even if they're decent, limit your ability to be good elsewhere. Right? It's not good enough. Yeah. None of this is good enough. And it hasn't been for a long time. And nothing has changed. And, and could we be at the point where maybe something will? Maybe. Maybe, but it didn't happen last spring and they finished seventh in the All-Canadian Division. So... You know, to, to sort of top it all off, like, I, I often think about this as Canadians, right? Like, we as Canadians don't think of ourselves as subjects. But technically, we live in a constitutional monarchy, yeah, right? All right. All you right. know, we, we sort of don't have, an, uh, don't have a self-awareness of the reality. And I do think, too, in sports, we have such a sense of ownership in a community of a team, right? But it's not. It's not a public trust. No. It's a privately owned company. And, you know... The fact is, is that because this organization saw what happened in 2021 and stood pat and stood behind their current leadership group, right? I think you're now at a point where, and for example, I know that um, media requests to speak with Jim Benning have gone into the organization, right? But it's like, what can he even deflect blame at this point from Canucks ownership? Does that even work anymore? Like, I don't know. 
I think we're sort of past that. I think fundamentally this season, what we've come to, especially because of how the 2020 offseason played out and how the 2021 season played out, like I think in fans' minds, yes, Travis Green is sort of the face right now of a lot of fan discontent. Yes, fans are out of patience for the Jim Benning era, but I fundamentally think more than more than I've ever seen before, uh, Canucks ownership themselves are kind of wearing this in the minds of a lot of people in this market. And that's fair because, as you said, the there's so many layers to what's going on with the Canucks, right? From the on ice level to the front office, and then ultimately to ownership. And as you said, you know, it's kind of baffling that ownership has been tolerant of the product that we've seen in Jim Benning's tenure with the Vancouver Canucks. And it's especially surprising to me because just from a financial perspective, we know what the upside of Vancouver as a market is, right? Like if this team is consistently competitive, successful, competing in the playoffs, going on deep playoff runs, the financial upside is massive. You know what I mean? This isn't a a small American market where you feel like you just have to keep payroll down and get some butts in seats and, and then hope that cross your fingers and hope that the pro the uh, value of the franchise goes up. You can make big, big money. If this team is good in Vancouver. And the fact that there hasn't been more of a push, more of a, a standard that they're trying to reach to get to that point. It's really surprising to me. It just, that as much we can debate all of the moves that Jim Benning has made and point out all of the failures that have happened and which players are underperforming. But ultimately that question of what's the goal here from ownership, what's the direction, why haven't they demanded more? That to me is one of the big overarching questions happening with the Canucks right now. It's the Canucks hour here, Sportsnet 650, tons and tons and tons of texts coming in 650, 650 to be Dunbar lumber text line. We'll try to read as many of, of them as we can up next. Keep them coming in. It's the Canucks Hour here, Sportsnet 650. What is going on? Welcome back. Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. The Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery visit avenuemachinery.ca. Of course, you can keep your text coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. And we continue, Drancer, to react, to take the fan base's reaction after a disastrous three-game road trip, two more games, that the Canucks lose on the weekend, 7-4 against Vegas, 5-1 against Anaheim last night. Lots to get into, so keep those texts coming in, but a few have come in on this point. Chris texts in, why does Elias Pettersson get a free pass? Another one, unsigned, says, where is Petey? Why is the media not calling him out? He's your best player, highest paid. He's been invisible. More texts coming in like that. Drance, we have spent plenty and plenty and plenty of airtime on this show. It's a daily topic. Criticizing Elias Pettersson for his Daily so topic. Wondering why he can't get it going. Pointing out that this team needs him to be an elite player, and he hasn't been anything close to that. As you said, daily topic here. Daily topic. And it has to be. It has to be. You know, fundamentally, fundamentally, I give Pettersson the benefit of the doubt for this reason, right? He was dominant. Dominant. Over 185 games to begin his career, including a playoff run in which he was a point-per-game player. Um, yeah, you, you, you earn some goodwill 
<laughs> no, no one who has started their career over 185 games, not one season, not two seasons, like almost 200 game sample has ever gone on to be less than a first line caliber player. Yeah. And most of them have gone on to be players of historic consequence in the NHL. Now, am I concerned with what I'm seeing out of Pedersen for 16 games? More than concerned. I'm shocked by it. And, and, I, and I noted off the top of this show that he wasn't getting matchup-level respect from the home coaches on this late, latest Canucks road trip. That, to me, is like the most damning indictment. There's nothing we can say or the media can say that means more than the way NHL coaches are game-planning or not for a guy, right? If he's not at the top of their pre-scout concerns, if his name's not written up on an opposing team's whiteboard and circled twice, like, that's that's way harsher criticism than anything we can say on this radio program. We pointed that out off the hop. So, anyway, Pedersen's a huge problem. Like, a huge problem for this team. He has three even strength points. But he's also the thing that I think, if I'm looking for reasons that I actually think this Canucks team could be better than they've showed, that they actually could turn it around, is that I remain so confident in Pedersen's ability to be a difference maker in this league and, and that the form he's shown over the past 16 games is not who he is, that, you know, I do think that's going to turn around. I do think that he's going to start to fire. Um, and I do think the team will look an awful lot better when that happens. But I don't think that whether it's him, whether it's Hughes, whether it's Besser, whether it's any of these Canucks young players, whether it's Demko playing behind this defensive team on the on the road trip I don't think anyone's being put in a good position to succeed right now and for me that fundamentally turns the the sort of um our focus back to key key organizational decision makers and that's just it right if you're looking at the 16 games so far of this season of course Pedersen is at, at at most the second biggest problem behind the penalty kill right but he's probably even a bigger problem if you're just looking at the 16 games of this season and that's why we've spent a lot of time dissecting his play. We've spent a lot of time wondering what it's going to take to get him going. We've spent a lot of time squinting to see if we could see any signs of progress from Elias Pettersson because he has been a massive, massive issue for this team through the first 16 games. What's happening now, though, and the reason why he wasn't a focus on the postgame show last night, he hasn't been a focus on our show so far, is that the conversation around this team is much bigger than just these first 16 games. Elias Pettersson's been a problem for them, but he hasn't been a problem for the last three years for this team. He is not going to be a problem for the next three years for this team. And the things that are, that have been problems for the last years and that could be problems going forward, that's what's taking up the lion's share of, lion's share of the conversation right now. 100%. I, I want to I bring up a text from Jim in North Van who asks, Hey team, Corey Hirsch, 650 play-by-play color guy, uh, mentioned that there's somebody in the locker room that's causing an alpha dog problem. Have you heard similar whispers? And I want to address this for this reason. Sure. If it wasn't tense in that locker room, if there weren't significant arguments going on between that group of players, that would be the concern. Like, this is miserable. It's miserable to lose like this. Yeah. It's miserable to lose like the team did last season. If everyone was getting along, that would be the concern. You know, it's not a concern that guys are mad, that guys aren't getting along. You know what solves all of these issues? You know what? You know what solves every single locker room issue in the history of the world? Winning. Winning. It's yeah. magic. Wave a wand, win some games, and all of a sudden everyone everyone can stand everybody. It, it, the fact that there's discord in the room is not a surprise. And in fact, it's how it should be. I'd be way wor- more worried about this group if everyone was like singing kumbaya together considering the way that they've played as a group. The players certainly look miserable on the ice. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they look like they're not having any fun at all right now, no. which is exactly how they should look because it is ugly. And I mean, even you know the and look, going out and getting into scrums isn't going to magically turn the thing around. But even the little bit of physical engagement and scrums after the whistle that we saw, it, it looks just almost perfunctory, right? It looks like they're just going through the motions out of almost pure frustration, and that's just. You saw it boil over at the end of the game too, where they—I mean—they had the goalie pulled; they could barely get out of their own end. It was—it was disastrous. And I think, again, not to you know do a deep dive on the body language of the team on the ice or anything, but it, it looked like a defeated. <laughs> we need beaten, to get Kintech to sponsor down, this beaten down team last <laughs> night, especially late in that game. I thought. I, I I do think I do think the the one locker room thing that I do think is a much larger concern is how often key players on this team look dissatisfied just to be representing the franchise uh, that that to me is a much bigger concern than any any sort of um classic barking about alpha male status or alpha dog status like that is that is sort of a way to put an argument over what the best way out of this is right that to me is healthy yeah. in fact that's what you want what what i'm more concerned about generally speaking is with the way that the bubble played out Right with the way that every single UFA walked following the club's success in the playoffs, and and most of them blasted the way that they were treated on the way out the door, um, with the way that the 2021 season played out thereafter, um, with the way that the organization didn't spend in that season, um, you know, and then the continued losing to open this year. The the bigger concern for me is how happy are guys to be here right now? How bought in? How much trust? does the organization have with the players in that room? That, to me, is the bigger concern than any arguments between players, which, for me, is healthy. The troubling thing about that, and I think you're on to something there, Drance, and everything you laid out is probably having a major impact on how these players are competing, how they're feeling, as you said, the the pride they're taking in representing this franchise. But it also concerns me because we're in year two of this now, right? So it's it's one thing to say, oh man, I'm really ticked off of how that last offseason went, and the team let a lot of my you know my teammates and guys I relied on they let them walk and didn't treat them well, and now we're in this weird COVID season, and and I just can't I can't get motivated to give it my best, and and I'm getting frustrated, and it's really hard. I understand that, but now we're in this into a second season of it, and it, that is super concerning to me because. Look, we've already gone through all the problems of roster construction and why that's an issue. Totally. But if you have play, like, I, I and again, I'm not saying it's invalid, but some players, you're going to kind of throw away two seasons of NHL hockey because of that frustration. Like, to me, that reflects extremely poorly on the players as well. Even even if you, you acknowledge the frustrating circumstances they've been put in, you at, at a certain point, you've got to find some professional pride to play for. Even if you hate, man, I, I can't stand this franchise. I, I want to get out of here. Okay, that's great. When you're a new UFA, do that. Demand a trade in the offseason. But at a certain point, you're playing NHL hockey. You don't get a lot of time to do that. No. You're going to throw away two seasons on that? That, That is just, it, it's mind-blowing to me. And I'm not saying that does, that makes it untrue. It, it very easily could be true. But it also is just, as I said, to me, that reflects really poorly on but the players as well. It's just one of those things that I think makes it harder to pull out of a losing skid. Yep. As opposed to something that lasts when you're winning. You know what I'm saying? I, I just think fundamentally... It's it's an environmental like it's a symptom of an environment. It's not the cause of it. That that I don't think it's a chicken and an egg. Although a lot of people would would disagree with me. I want to read another text, which is 
So you're saying we're a practice fight away from glory, which, of course, is a reference to the St. Louis Blues' great turnaround. You know who the St. Louis Blues played the next day? The Florida Panthers. So I actually was, I was in St. Louis for that uh, that news cycle, that hockey news cycle. But it was uh, Zach Sanford fought Robert Bortuzzo, Bortuzzo. Yeah. yeah, who's out of license plates. And... Um, and, and, of course, the Blues turned around. Do you know how bad it is in Vancouver right now? No one is bringing up the Blues. That is, know, like the, right? that is like the ultimate go-to for fan bases grasping for straws. Like, we saw it way late in the season last year. People being like, it could be what like the Blues. The, what about the Blues? Yeah. What about Bennington? That, Remember that? that? That happened. That Blues season was the greatest gift to struggling NHL teams <laughs> ever. <laughs> totally. But, but this is so bad right now that no one's even invoking the Blues. No one's no. no one's even singing the blues. And again, that's because it's not just about this year. It's no, not, it's not. If, if it was just about this year, then you would see people saying, "Okay, you know, it's been bad, bad sixteen games, but there are examples we can turn it around." But it, the reason why the pessimism has gotten this much is it's not just about these sixteen games. It's about so much more than that. Uh, Stephen and Delta text in. How could you even conceive of allowing this GM a shot to pick another coach if they need to make foundational changes to this team and its approach? It has to start at the top by losing the general manager. He has no idea how to construct a team. He got lucky one year when they made the playoffs. Every other season, the team is going to finish in the bottom third of the league. And he says it has to start at the top. And, I mean, ultimately, I think he's right. It's If you wanted, if you look at this and think long-term the Canucks need a different coach than Travis Green, that's perfectly fine. And in professional sports, when, when a coach has been in one spot for a long time, sometimes it's time to move on. It's best for everyone to move on. That happens. But there should be no expectation that replacing Travis Green with an interim coach or replacing Travis Green with Claude Julian or Bruce Boudreaux or whatever candidate that's out there that you want to bring in, there should be no expectation that that one move is going to turn things around. Right, like that's not why you're firing the coach. If you choose to go that route, you're moving on from the coach because you want someone else long term. Any moves that we're talking about that might be made, it should not be made with salvaging the remaining 66 games of this season as the top priority. To me, at least, it's about much, much more than that. And I agree, it probably, it, 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 it probably does have to start at the top here. 100% it does. 100% it does. Um, especially with the route that this team has taken here, right? Big picture, right? Big picture was what I called the segment of the armies that I wrote last night. And trying to situate what we've experienced over the last eight years in this market in the context of this, right? Which is that the Benning era effectively straddles a moment where the club knew that they had to manage decline, right? The twins were aging out. Luongo was aging out. Kessler was aging out. Right, we saw Luongo trade. We saw the Kessler trade. We saw yep. Bieksa, um, Ham Hughes. We should have seen <laughs> Hanson, Burrows. Right, like the dismantling of the 2011 core was was the project to be managed, and the club didn't try to manage it by steering into a rebuild. In fact, they tried to rage against the dying of the light, right? That was the key first few years, right? They, they signed Louis Erickson, Ryan Miller, Radim Verbata. Uh, the club chased Milan Lucic. Eventually, they tried to get a meeting with John Tavares, right? Like, they pursued veteran talent. They traded for win-now types, Brandon Sutter and, and Eric Goodbranson, right? They dealt mid-round picks for players closer to helping out now. Um, everything was being done to win, and it was a categorical failure. Like, it was a categorical failure. The club never came close. 
Finally, in about 2017, this team decides that, in fact, you know what? We are rebuilding. And they start to use the word in public. Yeah. Two drafts later, and granted, those were pretty decent classes, but two drafts later, we're back to, in the summer of 2018, the club's pursuing the accelerator. The club's pursuing the meeting with Tavares. The twins retire, and and they go out and get Beagle and Roussel and add to their bloated, inefficient contracts. Um, finally, they t- take a step, and then they change direction twice in terms of budget sort of restrictions or constraints in, in, in nine months. You know, and, and you get to a point where you undo all of the work of the 2020 offseason this past offseason, right? And, and, and once, you, once you're doing that, like, for, forget all the other sins. Forget the sins of trying to compete and failing, right? Forget the sins of not doing a disciplined, focused rebuild for long enough and amassing enough talent. Forget the fact that the club didn't even make enough hay out of the years of bad hockey that this market has endured over the last decade. Yep. Forget all of that. Even just in the last nine months, changing direction twice, allowing Markstrom to Foley and Tanev to walk and replacing them with Holpe Schmidt and, um, you know, who else? Vertanen, two of whom were bought out, using that money on those three guys. Two of whom have already been bought out. The other guy returned just a third-round pick. Like that's, it's a slow drip, bleeding value, bleeding real hockey value, tangible value for this hockey team. And where does it get you? It gets you here. Like it gets you to a point where you're all in. Consecutive first-round picks traded on this team, and the team's bad. You know, and now the cupboards are really bare, right? It was said yeah. that the cupboards were bare when, when this regime came in. But now the cupboards are really bare. It's really going to be tough to dismantle this team and improve it if that's the direction that this club takes. And if the goal is to actually win a cup, if the goal is to give Vancouver fans that moment of, you know, uh, like like fatalistic relief, <laughs> you're, you're not going to die without seeing the Canucks win a cup, right? Yeah. Which is what everyone in this market just wants. It's not even, people won't even be happy. They'll just be like, thank goodness, right? Um, though people will be happy, but also it would mostly be relief. You know, the fact is, is that if you're going to do that, I do think a fundamental change in direction is kind of like the first step. It has to happen. And and then you get into all sorts of tough questions. I mean, I see in our inbox, people are, and I don't have the exact text pulled up, so excuse me, but people are like, should the club, is the timing right to trade JT Miller? Like, the harder question is, is this team ever going to be competitive on Bo Horvat's contract? Like, that's the harder question. And, and that's sort of where it feels like we're steering into, even though I'm not certain yet that this team is as bad as it's looked through 16 games. And that's when you start, when those are the questions that you're asking, then it naturally follows, who do you want making those decisions? Right. That's the big idea, right? And again, it's not, if, if you make a change at the general manager position this week or next week or whenever, it's not because you're trying to turn this season around. You're under no illusions that replacing the general manager is going to make things dramatically different on the ice this year. It's about finding the right person to make some of those big decisions, right? Do we need to move on from JT Miller? What are, what's Brock Besser's next contract going to look like? What's Bo Horvat's next deal going to look like? Is that something we're interested in? Resigning Bo Horvat. Are there other players that have value that we should consider moving? Those are massive franchise-defining questions. You need to have the right person in charge making those decisions. And it's easy to understand why most fans, most listeners don't think the right person is in charge right now. I did want to read this quickly from Kevin in North Van. He says, I don't understand un- under I don't understand the surprise with the ownership group. It's been persistently evident that they are not interested in running a successful hockey organization in terms of pursuing cups. That sucks, but it's the harsh 
reality. Here's the thing, though. For a long time, that was not evident at all. For a long time, it looked like they were very, very interested in running a successful hockey organization, in competing consistently for Stanley Cups. The Vancouver Canucks enjoyed their best stretches of franchise under this ownership group, and part of that was their willingness to spend to the cap, their willingness to invest outside of the cap in, you know, sleep performance and and injury rehabilitation, all of these things where they could flex their financial muscles to improve the product on the ice. They have a record of doing that, which to me makes it all the more baffling that they've been willing to accept this for so long. Yeah. No, there's something else going on. There has to be. The, The arithmetic, the calculus governing these decisions has to be more complicated than what we understand and, and more complicated than it was 10 years ago. There, there's no other explanation. Uh, another uh, another text comes in. Do you read anything to Roberto Aquilini being on the road trip with this team? That was reported, I saw, from Patrick Johnston earlier today. Of course, we know Francesco was on the trip, but that was new information. Anything, something, or nothing in your eyes, Drancer? Um, yeah, maybe something. Maybe something. But, I mean, not enough, um, not enough to know for sure. I mean, you know, Francesco's whereabouts on this trip right and the fact that he stayed for Sunday night football has become a talking point but like he was on the first road trip the the entire first road trip yeah so you know not unusual for an owner to be with the team um you know Roberto Aquilini being around the team I've I I don't know that I've seen him on the road but I'm not traveling with the club so I mean it's possible that I've missed him uh do I read something into that probably I mean I, I do I read something into that for sure I think that's fascinating I think it's a deeply interesting nugget, especially because of, you know, Roberto's role within the family uh, sort of taking the lead in terms of the investment group, um, you know, but I, I mean, could it be nothing? <laughs> yeah, it also could be nothing. So I, I don't know exactly how to read it yet. I'll, I'll need to make a lot of calls this afternoon. I'm sure I'm not the only one in this market who will be doing so. Um, it's a, It's fascinating, but I don't know what it means yet. And that's that kind of sums up the moment where we're at right now in a lot of ways. Sat said it on the postgame show last night, right, where the way he's approaching these next couple of days before Wednesday's game and even whatever happens at Wednesday's game is all bets are off, right? Because for a lot of us and for a lot of fans from the outside looking in, change, significant change, change seems inevitable. But we've been wrong before on that account, right? And we had Ian McIntyre on the postgame show last night, and he said – Look, there's only one person that knows the answer to these questions, and it's Francesco Aquilini. And maybe you throw a couple of other members of the Aquilini family in that group, but it's a small, small group of people who actually know the answers to the question. And I think that is, in some ways, that's a a dangerous spot for a franchise to be, right? Where you're on this kind of precipice, and it feels like something momentous is going to happen But we really don't know what yet, right? I mean, there could be any combination of key figures leaving, staying, all, you know, many could go, all could stay. At this point, we're just guessing. And it's, it just doesn't feel like a sustainable spot for the club to be in for that much longer in this season, where people are just constantly speculating that massive changes are right around the corner. I I don't know how you can live like that for another 66 games here. Well, and we've been there for so long partly because this team multiple years in a row has made significant roster changes and then been cataclysmic right off the bat you know like this stretch this stretch finally did feel like the start of last season where it was like five goals against every game right 
This this yes. felt like this felt like last year. This felt yeah. like last year. As much as the Canucks don't want to talk about last year, this felt exactly like last year. And so the noise gets turned up to a high decibel level, and either changes are made or a Twitter thread is authored. <laughs> you know, that's where we're at. That's where we're at with this Canucks season, and it's only November 15th, 10 days short of American Thanksgiving. Good place. <laughs> good, good place to be. Exactly, exactly where they wanted to be. 16 <laughs> how games they, how they drew it up. into the season. Yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to be a talking point across national media. Everyone in the NHL is going to be talking about us for all the wrong reasons. That's a national game, a national Wednesday night game on Sportsnet, by the way, tomorrow night, or not tomorrow night, on Wednesday oh boy. as well. So that's a little extra bit of spice added into the mix. Like, is it all ever? Eyes in NHL media in Canada, all eyes from fans across the country going to be on that oh, game. Salt, salt Bay pose, throw the sprinkle the cayenne on there. Let's, that's great. Yeah. Fascinating times, especially because... I mean, if you check Ticketmaster right now, there are tickets available, and I think the crowd reaction is almost the biggest sort of suspense point going into it Wednesday really night's contest. It really is. That's going to do it for us here. We will be back tomorrow, 11 a.m., to keep breaking it all down ahead of that fascinating game coming up on Wednesday. Thanks for texting in, and we really appreciate it. Uh, it's It's been the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.